Believe in yourself, cause it starts with you And then everyone else will believe you too And if it looks like you're the only believer around Just keep on believing, don't put yourself down Just Our guest this week grew up in Zeeland, Michigan He had a 25-year baseball career playing for the Twins, White Sox, Phillies, Yankees, and Cardinals won 283 games, and was a 16-time Gold Glove Award winner. From 1995 to 2006, he was a baseball analyst for the New York Yankees. And in 2022, he was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. He has shot his age in golf, both right-handed and left-handed. Affectionately known as Kitty Cott, his name, Jim Cott. And I'm Jack Crisula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. I'm Jack Crisula. This is Anything is Possible, and we're with an amazing human being, Jim Cott. He won 283 games over a 25-year career, and last year finally was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Jim, welcome. An honor to have you. Well, thank you. It's uh, going to be enjoyable visiting with you. Can we start by talking about your childhood in Zeeland, Michigan, and your mom and your dad, please? Yeah, I never get tired of that. I grew up in a small town in Michigan, southwestern Michigan. Actually, it was more Cubs in White Sox territory than Tigers because it's uh, right down there off the lake. Uh, small town, uh, great parents. My dad was a huge baseball fan, never was uh, a skilled player, but he, for some reason, fell in love with the Philadelphia Athletics because of Connie Mack. And so I, too, became a Philadelphia Athletics fan in my youth. Uh, my mother did a lot of seamstress work, so she really, and in those days, I think mom's were like that. They didn't uh, drive you to games and so forth. So when they uh, used to add, tell her that they heard her son was a pretty good baseball player, she would say, yes, I think he's the one that throws the ball so they can hit it. <laughs> so that was her knowledge of baseball. But, you know, I thought every kid in America grew up like I did because uh, ate three meals at home, lived two blocks from school, uh, Everybody trusted everyone. Everyone had respect for their elders. And, uh, you know, then when I got off into the field of uh, professional baseball, I found out differently. But I I had a just an ideal childhood, one that I wished uh, every kid in America could have experienced. All right, let's go back to June 26th, 1946, Briggs Stadium. The Tigers are playing the Red Sox. And your dad took you to your first game. Please. Yeah, my dad and my Uncle John and another family friend uh, drove to Detroit. Uh, never forget it. June 26, as you mentioned, 1946, Tigers-Red Sox doubleheader. Uh, Hal Newhauser pitched the first game, complete game. He actually he also hit a home run. Williams hit one, so did Greenberg. I think the Tigers won that like 16-4, to 16-3. And then the next one, the Red Sox won. Boo Ferris, who was the Red Sox best pitcher. Uh, Williams had another home run then. And uh, what was amazing about that Wednesday, I believe it was a Wednesday afternoon, because it was right after the war ended. And there were, for a 
weekday, regularly scheduled doubleheader, there was over over 40,000 people there. But uh, I just remember walking up that ramp to find our seats. We were in the uh, upper deck right over the Tiger dugout, third base dugout. And it's the greenest green I'd ever seen, the whitish uniforms. I mean, it was just amazing. And I've heard so many baseball fans tell me they had that same experience. If they've never seen a a major league baseball diamond and you walk out and see it for the first time, it's so impressive. All right. Let's go to June 17th, 1957. You're signed by the Washington Senators. Jim, what did they pay you? Well, the, the bonus rules in that time, in 1957, if you received a bonus package of more than $4,000, you were required to occupy a spot on the major league roster, on the 40-man roster. Uh, Sandy Koufax, Harmon Killebrew were two Hall of Famers that came up that way, and their, their careers really took about four or five years to develop. And my dad followed that that history of those so-called bonus babies because uh, we got the sporting news every Monday. In those days, it took all week to read it. And uh, he followed the plight of a lot of those players. So when the White Sox scout Pete Melito uh, said to my dad, I think we can get your son 25000 my dad said, we're going to take the 4000 and go to Superior, Nebraska and start my career to learn how to play the game from the bottom up. So that was my signing bonus in 1957, and it was uh, probably one of the most uh, influential decisions uh, on my life that my dad you know, convinced Pete and myself that just take the four and go to the minor leagues and learn how to play, which, uh, which stood me in in good stead as my career developed. All right, let's go back 64 years, August 2nd, 1959, Washington Senators, they bring you up. What do you remember about that first game? Well, when when I got called up, I was quite surprised because earlier that year, I had set the Southern Association strikeout record. I struck out 19 in Nashville. And then... uh, when I started my next game, I think the first four outs in the game into the second inning were strikeouts, and I, uh, I don't know if I don't remember if I actually came out of that game or if I pitched the rest of it, but I knew there was something not right with my left shoulder, and uh, so I took about ten days off. In those days, they didn't have an injured list; they didn't have great communication between the minor leagues and the major league front office. So Red Mary and our manager said, well, just rest it for 10 days, see how it feels. So I came back in 10 days and I really, my arm angle had dropped quite a bit. And uh, all of a sudden that first or second day of August, Red calls me in and said, you're going to the big leagues. And I said, Red, do do they know about my arm issue? He said, no, you go up there and tell them about it there. (laughs) That would never happen today, of course. So I went up and I started against the uh, Go-Go Sox who won the pennant that year. Louis Aparicio mm-hmm. was the first hitter I faced. And I didn't last long. And they can tell by the third inning that, uh, you know, I was not the same pitcher. So I I had a little, uh, like, a cyst uh, somewhere between my ribs down my left shoulder area. I think it was a, 
a muscle, a, a strained muscle that had calcified. So I had some surgery and was done for the rest of the year. So my date was not a very impressive one other than the fact that uh, it's always a thrill to get up there and put your big league uniform on. We're talking to Jim Cott. He played in the majors from 1959 to 83, 25 seasons, over four decades. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Rasula. We're with Jim Cott, the author of Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. If there's ever a category called citizen of the game of baseball, Jim Cott could be first on that list. Jim, let's go to April 27th, 1960. You start against Whitey Ford. The first four guys you face are Bobby Richardson, Gil McDougal, a guy named Mickey Mantle, and then Yogi Berra. It's your first victory. Tell us about that game. Well, when I got to start in Yankee Stadium, we had uh, the end of 59. I was with the team on a road trip, so I'd seen the stadium. But uh, uh, to start was uh, was quite an intimidating experience, of course, with the history of the Yankees and the history of Yankee Stadium. And uh, Whitey Ford, who I'm honored to say became a good friend uh, later, so we, we discussed some of those early games we had against one another. But in those days, the starting pitchers warmed up adjacent to home plate in the on-deck circles almost, and then you were throwing a bit downhill toward the home, home plate screen. And they did that so the uh, fans could get a look at the starting pitchers warming up. So as I wound uh, warmed up, I would peek over about 20 feet to my left occasionally and see number 16 and think, wow, I'm pitching against Whitey Ford. And, uh, and then when I went into my set position like a left-hander would do with a man on first, I would be looking right into the Yankee dugout. And that's when I saw the players of some of the names you mentioned. You know, I saw Mantle and Maris and Yogi and and uh, Bobby Richardson and Scourin, and uh, so that was pretty intimidating and uh, fortunate that that day that I I had a nice day, and uh, Jim Lemon actually got a pinch hit home run off Whitey uh, in the top of the eighth inning and uh, got my first win. Pedro Ramos came in and pitched the last two innings, and we won that game five to four. So as you might imagine, I have a framed box score of that game because that was a, a great memory to have to get your first win in those conditions. We're speaking of Jim Cott. Prior to the 1961 season, they moved the team to Minneapolis and they became the Minnesota Twins. And you had some legends with you, a.k.a. Paul Bunyan, known as the killer, Harmon Killebrew. Tell us about him. Well, Harmon was the face of our franchise, and uh, whenever I see anything a bit out of order behavior-wise from some of today's Twins players, if that happens, I think, what would Harmon think? Because he he set such a great example for us, not only on the field, the way he conducted himself, but if you watch some of the Twins, I'd say in the 90s, guys like Michael Kadire and uh, then Joe Maurer, Justin Morneau, and you'll notice 
that they write their autograph very legibly, which very few of the modern players do. But Harmon was adamant that he told all the young players, you know, write your name so those fans that ask for your autograph can look at it and know who it is. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, when I went through my induction into the Hall of Fame, they give you uh, a souvenir bat that is autographed for all the living Hall of Famers that are there. And I would say there might be 10 names on that bat that I can actually read. They now give you a little code so it shows the place on the bat where so-and-so is signed and you can understand who it is. So Harmon had that kind of... uh, had that kind of influence, and I think we all looked up to him, and I think he kind of set the standard for, um, you know, the behavior and, and the way players conducted themselves. An example of that is I got to speak at Harm's memorial service uh, back at Target Field, and I sat next to Henry Aaron, which was quite a thrill for me because he was my favorite position player. And Henry went out of his way to come to that service because he always thought Harmon was the most classy uh, upstanding Hall of Famer of any of the Hall of Famers that he met. That's the kind of respect he had from Henry Aaron. Speaking of Hall of Famers, you had a teammate, Tony Oliva. He won three American League batting championships, and the two of you went in finally last year. Tell us about Tony Oliva. Well, that was such a thrill. You know, I was hoping that... Uh, my teammate, the late Dick Allen, would get inducted as well. He missed by a vote. But, you know, Tony came up in the, in the early 60s. He, had, uh, he got out of Cuba, and he reported to spring training in Fernandina Beach. Uh, it was late, I believe, in 1961, right toward the end of training camp. So the powers that be did not get a chance to see a lot of him uh, display his skills, so they released him. Well, we had a, a, a young man, he's, he's, he's our age now, and he's been in the, involved in baseball for so many years, but Minnie Mendoza we called the Cuban godfather. And we had a lot of Cuban players. Papa Joe Cambria uh, signed many of the great Cuban players that we had. In fact, when we went to Minnesota and had the TC on our cap, the trademark, I always said it stood for 20 Cubans because we had Pasquale and Ramos and Zoyal Versailles who won the MVP in 65. And Tony was one of that group. So uh, many took him along to Charlotte with them, and, and they all kind of lived in a house together. And Tony would get out on the field at Charlotte, take some batting practice. And uh, Phil Hauser, the general manager, who was Calvin Griffith's uh, brother-in-law noticed Tony hitting and he called Calvin and said I think this kid he looks like he could hit maybe we should send him to Withville which was uh, in Virginia there and it was an all-rookie summer league so Tony went there and hit 400 and kind of the rest of his story is history but uh, one of the things that I admired so much about Tony is when we were in the instructional league in the early 60s which is a developmental league in the fall where they'll send uh, some of their promising young players for a month or two. And Tony in the outfield would literally, and he laughs about this now, the the fly ball would be hit to him and it would land five feet away from him. He, He never was trained how to judge a fly ball. So in our training sessions in the morning, Del Wilbur, our manager, would hit him fly ball after fly ball. I was kind of the go-between guy that was 
catching the ball when he threw it back in. And in 1966, Tony won a gold glove. And if you ask him, he is probably as proud or more so of his 1966 gold glove than of his batting titles because the hitting came naturally for him. But he had to really work hard on the fielding. He was a great base runner. Uh, Truth be known, I think Tony should have been voted the MVP in 1965. I think it would have done a lot for Zoilo Versailles' career because Zoilo got the MVP. He had a a very outstanding year for a shortstop, uh, shortstop who were not known that much for for their hitting, and but but Zoilo put so much pressure on himself the next year that he never continued to go on and, and become the great player that he was in '65. Whereas Tony was a uh, a player with a with a great personality, even keeled, very mature, and of course he went on to win three batting titles, and we still see one another in in Minnesota, if there's one player other than maybe Kirby Puckett and uh, Harmon uh, that is revered by the Twins fans, it is Tony because he has now been in Minnesota as a resident and a former twin for over 60 years. We're talking to Jim Cott. By the way, he won 16 consecutive Gold Glove Awards. And I'm Jack Basula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 W. This is Anything is Possible. I'm your host, Jack Rasula. We're with Jim Cott. He played 25 years for the Twins, White Sox, Phillies, Yankees, and Cardinals. Jim, from 74 to 75, you won back-to-back 20 games each year. And the owner of that team was Bill Veck. I was a kid growing up on the south side of Chicago. Tell us about Bill Veck. Well, my first meeting with Bill Veck was actually back in the 60s because uh, uh, many current fans or players may not recall, but we, we got jobs in the off season because we never really earned enough money during the season. So we, we got off season jobs and I happened to land a job doing radio work for a, a small station in the Minneapolis area. And Bill Veck came in to speak at Augsburg college. And uh, my mission was to go and uh, interview him. And I asked him at that time, uh, tell me your thoughts on the state of baseball. And remember now, this is 1964, and he said, uh, well, it, it, and he still owned the White Sox at that time. He said, uh, it starts too early, it ends too late, and there's too much in between. And he said, what's going to hurt ownership in the long run is the high cost of mediocrity. And he was so accurate with that because the season today is too long. And, of course, I don't mean – mediocre from a condescending standpoint but when you look at some of the performances on a big league level um, they are paid an awful lot of money for you know what you'd call is just an average performance so Bill Zeck um, you know predicted that already but when I was um, when I was pitching for the White Sox in the mid-70s and I had two good years Roland Heeman was our general manager and John Allen was uh, the owner, and he was he was kind of losing money. We only drew a few hundred thousand people each year. 
And so Roland said, I think uh, that we'd have a chance to, to meet you, or to uh, move you. There were three teams in the National League looking for a veteran starter, the Phillies, the Mets, uh, and the Pirates. And he said, if we could, where would you like to go? And I said, well, I've always you know, been a Philadelphia A's fan. I know the Phillies have a fine up-and-coming team. I think I'd like to go there. So they did work it out. And the very first deal that Bill Veck made, I think it was December 10th of 1975, the first trade he made after repurchasing the uh, White Sox was trading me to the Phillies for a few young players, prospects, and I think there was a three-way deal going there. So the uh, White Sox actually ended up getting Ralph Gar in that trade, and it ended up being good for me. I didn't have individual great individual years, but those were great teams, but... That was the uh, first transaction Bill made. Of course, I recall the, uh, you know, the, the exploding scoreboard that he had in Chicago. He was such an innovator. He had that uh, scoreboard when the White Sox hit a home run, the fireworks were go off. I think we were playing one day and Harmon hit one and the guy turned it on by mistake and the fireworks went off. But he was a legendary uh, innovator uh, in the world of professional baseball. We're talking to Jim Cott, who won 283 games. He started 625, and he had 180 complete games. And one more fact, he won 16 Gold Glove Awards, and he used the same glove for 15 years. Um, All right. You had 38 different catchers during your 25-year career. Talk about the chemistry needed between the pitcher and the catcher. I was so fortunate when I when I came up. My first roommate was Hal Narragon, who actually was a backup catcher for Jim Hegan in Cleveland, catching Feller and Wynn and Garcia and all those Bob Lemon, all those great starters. Uh, so Hal, you know, as a young player, a veteran catcher like Hal took me under his wing, and then we made a trade and picked up Earl Batty. And Earl uh, actually got him from the White Sox, and Earl with that calm personality of his he was just perfect for me as a young pitcher and so I think those first five or six years in the big leagues having Earl behind the plate and even a good backup receiver in Jerry Zimmerman you know in those days if a catcher hit that was a bonus he was mostly in there to to learn about his pitchers and how to handle them and call a game and so I had two great ones there in Earl and Jerry Zimmerman and then as time went on, uh, Phil Roof, who was uh, ended up becoming my roommate, but uh, we picked him up in a trade. It's kind of a, a neat a side story is that Phil blocked the plate one day when Harmon was coming in to score, and Harmon hit his knee and flipped over, and everybody thought it was a dirty play, and I was pitching that day, so my instructions were to like let him know we didn't like it. So I hit Roofy in the ribs, and... Uh, Two years later, three years later, he gets traded, and I said, well, we're on the same team now. So one day, Bill Rigney put him behind the plate, put him in the lineup. I'd never pitched to him before. And it was like magic. You know, it's one of those things where, as a pitcher, you're thinking ahead what pitch you'd like to throw. And when the catcher puts those same fingers down or finger, uh, you, you know, that it, it kind of gives you confidence and reassures you that that's the, that's the right pitch. And Phil and Earl were like that. Some catchers, uh, you know, they, they try their best, but I think they have a, a little more interest in their hitting, or some catchers would call pitches that they couldn't hit, so they figured nobody else could hit them either. 
So I was lucky to have, uh, you know, and then Timmy McCarver, um, I didn't pitch to Tim a lot because, you know, we he caught Steve Carlton, but we became great friends. I learned a lot about uh, pitching just sitting next to him, and, uh, you know, it was a, a sad off season because Tim passed away back in, in February, but he was another example of a, of a good catcher that had uh, good influence on me. All right. Um, in the uh, 70s, you were with the Phillies, and when there was a rain delay, Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn would have you on to tell stories, and that started the uh, transformation eventually to being a broadcaster. And you credit Tim McCarver and football legend John Madden. Talk about what they did for you in your broadcasting career. Well, first of all, the rain delay story, uh, you know, they didn't go to alternative programming then. We didn't have cable TV. <laughs> Not many games were on TV. So uh, during a rain delay, as you mentioned, they called me up to the booth in Wrigley Field. And there happened to be a young man named Jody Shapiro, who was with Major League Films at the time. And uh, so when I went back down to the clubhouse, he said, you know, when you get done playing, you should think about going into this business. And uh of course, when you're playing, you think you're going to play forever. So I didn't look that far ahead. But uh, when we had the player strike in 81, uh, Jody now was running home team sports in uh, in Washington, in Baltimore. And he called me and said, we're going to do minor league games uh, during this player strike. And we wonder if you'd like to go and work some games with Ralph Kiner. First game I worked was Rochester and Syracuse. And Cal Ripken was the... Uh, shortstop Mike Boddicker was the starting pitcher. Of course, both went on to play with the Orioles. But as I got into the uh, business and, and played with the with the Phillies, having known Tim, and he was in the business, I really began to pick their brain uh, like you would as a player. And uh, John Madden was so helpful to me. He, you know, I, I found myself. You have so many notes. You're wondering what you're going to see and, and, and talk about, and you force things in and. So I learned from John, you know, don't don't worry about it. just do your homework. Don't worry about all these notes. Just watch the game. Tell people what you see. And Timmy, when we were teammates and we'd sit on the bench on the days he wasn't catching, uh, we would look for things that happened on the field away from the ball. So if a runner was scoring and the throw came into home, was the hitter rounding first and taking advantage of that throw to get into second base? Or was the outfielder playing too deep in the opposite field? We looked at things like that, and those are the kind of things that Tim taught me, uh, you know, that helped me in my broadcast career. We're talking to Jim Cott, and during his broadcasting career, he won seven Emmy Awards for excellence in sports broadcasting. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Jack Krizula, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit, brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. 15 of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. It's 
With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. I'm Jack Basula. This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to Jim Cott. The man has shot his age in golf, both right-handed and left-handed. Jim, that's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. So, okay. Um, the GOAT, in my opinion, in sports baseball broadcasting, Vin Scully. What made him so good? Well, I think the the real talent in broadcasting, and I've told this to Vin, I told it to Ernie Harwell and to Herb Carneal, who did our Twins games, the real talent in broadcasting are the radio guys. Baseball is such a great radio game. You know, I would lay in my bed there in Zeeland, Michigan, on a Sunday afternoon, and I could listen to eight games. Uh, The Tigers played a doubleheader. I could listen to Harry Heilman. The Cubs had Jack Brickhouse and Jack Quinlan. The White Sox had Bob Elson. And the Braves had just moved to Milwaukee. They had Blaine Walsh and Earl Gillespie. And those good radio announcers would just paint the picture so you you almost felt like you were in the ballpark. And uh, nobody did that. I think there are broadcasters that did it like Vin did, like Ernie. Ernie had a – a lot of them had partners. But Vin kind of had free reign. You know, he did one commercial, I think, Farmer John's. but uh, And then with that huge audience out in L.A., and getting his start in Brooklyn. I just think he had that, he had the style and he had the longevity, and that's what made him stand out. I, I still have great respect for, for what Ernie did. I have a framed letter that uh, Ernie sent me uh, up in my up in my memorabilia room because he would always say to me, Jim's your dad going to be listening tonight down in Michigan? I said, oh, yeah, down in Zealand. So he would say hello to my dad. Yes. So guys like Ernie and you had Jimmy Dudley in Cleveland, uh, they did the same thing. But I think Vin is, is considered the best at painting the picture and, and being able to pass that on to the to the audience. And he had a he had a cadence about him. You know, nowadays, if you listen to a game on radio, it's chock full of promotions. It's chock full of conversation. And Vin and Bob Elson and Ernie were those guys that all of a sudden through the airwaves, you could hear the crowd, you could hear the vendor. And, you know, that made you feel like being at the ballpark. And those are the guys that, that did that the best. That's the real talent. Those of us that do it on TV, it's pretty easy. You're looking at the pictures and you played the game. So all you have to do is tell them what's happening out there. And as Jack Buck told me when he found out I was getting into the business, he said, uh, called me off in a, um, in a corner and said, don't ever tell people how easy it is. Just cash the checks and smile. <laughs> so I never forgot that. Uh, Ernie Harwell, arguably the, the most beloved man in the history of Michigan. He used to always say, whenever you have a choice of being right or kind, always choose kind. And I think, Jim, he's the only sports announcer to ever be traded for a ball player. So... Let's talk about one more, Dick Enberg. Oh, my. Yeah, Dick Enberg. You know, he went to Central Michigan. And uh, so when I first met Dick, he was doing Angels games, uh, I think with Buddy Blattner out there in the West Coast. And then fast forward into the 80s when NBC, Michael Weisman with NBC, uh, 
had me hired me to do ba- backup games. Every Saturday at that time, there was a doubleheader, a one o'clock game and a four o'clock game, and then there were two backup games in case those games were rained out. So I got to work some backup games with Dick, and uh, he was he was the one that would you know gently put his hand on my shoulder and kind of put his hand up as if no, not now. Uh, so he taught me how, how to let the game breathe. Uh, there's pictures out there. You don't have to tell everybody everything. You don't have to try to tell them everything you know. And, and I think along with John Madden and Timmy, you know, Dick, just those games I worked with him was such an education, as was Bill White and Dick Stockton. You know, I I told Keith Hernandez, who's now uh, quite respected as an announcer in New York, I said, you have to attack this business just like you did as a player. Uh, once you start talking about the game, they don't care whether you won an MVP or what you did. They they want to feel like you know what you're talking about and do your homework and, and learn the mechanics of broadcasting as well as just spewing out the information. You know, nowadays it's it's hard to tell. It's just a jumbled up version in many cases of, uh, of two guys talking to another or talking about where they had dinner and they, they lose sight of, you know, people that are listening, they what's going on in the field? What's the manager thinking? Who's in the bullpen? Things like that. And the names that we've mentioned were the kind of guys that taught me that. All right, let's go back 13 months, July 26th, 2022. Cooperstown, induction. Tony Oliva, Big Poppy, David Ortiz, um, the late Bud Fowler, the late Gil Hodges, Minnie Minoso, Buck O'Neill, and yourself get inducted. What was that day like, Jim? Well, the whole week was was surreal. You know, first of all, when you get the call, the call actually came in December of uh, 2021. Uh, The veterans, when they vote, uh, they have uh, a ballot of 10, and you have to get 12 out of 16, which if you've looked at the history of that voting procedure, it's quite difficult to do. And uh, the Hall of Fame says, look, if you could be on your – near your phone between 515 and 545 this Sunday evening, uh, and you do get enough votes, you'll get a call from Jane Clark. We don't call with bad news. And I had been on the ballot a few times before and did not get a call, so I knew the drill. So I'm sitting home in Florida at the time, and uh, and then about uh, a little past 530, the phone rang, and it said, this is Jane Clark from the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, she could have hung up the phone right then because you know immediately what it's about and your life has changed. And then building up to that uh, July 26th, which is coming up again in a, in a couple of weeks, I'll be going to the induction of Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff. Uh, it's quite a week. of. Uh, I never realized uh, the magnitude of the attention you get, even though you haven't played in 40 years, of now being considered a Hall of Famer. Uh and to be on that stage, I sat next to uh, Gil Hodges' daughter. And, and I think deeper, you know, the whole experience, I think having family and friends there is what really made it so worthwhile. And, I, and the fact that they were so happy for me. And so were so many of the other Hall of Famers. So that meant a lot. But I think since then, to be able to get to know Fergie Jenkins and Lee Smith, fellows like that as people, not just former ball players has been a great experience as well. So I know when I when I go back in uh, about two weeks here, a little over a week, and uh, you know I'm starting to rub elbows with uh, Tony Perez and Orlando Cepeda. I hope he's there. And Juan Marichal. Uh, that that's what the real thrill is to now to think that you're considered part of that family. And uh, 
you know, it's a, it's a memory that uh, will last as long as I will. We're talking to Jim Cott, the author of Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. Jim, if you could enact one change in baseball today, what would it be? Uh, I probably... I probably would shorten the season. Uh, that'll never happen because of financial reasons. But in the 50s, baseball owned the summer. You know, from February when you saw the movie reel pitchers and catchers report in, on the newsreels, and then you right into the October with the fall classic, it was all baseball. Now there are so many sports that fans pay attention to, and a lot of people really don't pay much attention to baseball because there's a playoff. So, and players, uh, there's a lot of injuries. Players are bigger, stronger, faster. You know, they're built like thoroughbreds. And, uh, and like Mickey Lolich, the great Mickey, said, I don't get injured because you can't pull fat. <laughs> you know? so, but now they're also muscular. And, uh, for example, in Minnesota, there's a great player named Byron Buxton. Well, he's only going to play 100 games a year. You know, he plays hard, but he suffers a certain amount of injuries. So I really think Memorial Day to Labor Day, would be enough for a baseball season and then september would be the playoff month and you get the world series out of the way when the weather is still good and to add to that let's uh let's play some world series games and playoff games during the day and not late at night jim cott thank you thank you thank you please join us next saturday until then i'm jack Rasula. thanks for listening make it a great week because with god anything is possible spawn Believe in yourself